from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Our 2021 College Roadshow is back on the road this week from the University of Missouri. And as the Tigers prepare to take on the Aggies, it's a matchup on our show that marks a first. Is soybean demand a sinking ship? As wheat and cotton prices continue to climb, how price and input supply scarcity may have the final say in the 2022 acreage gain. The White House says it's working to repair the supply chain, but can policy solve the problems? From a historic farm field planted 132 years ago. This is a very unique treasure that we have. To an effort that may unlock the key to solving labor woes for meat processors. One of them is a hot dog factory on wheels. Our 2021 College Roadshow from Mizzou kicks off now. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from the University of Missouri is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Now for the news, USDA in its latest crop production reports forecasts record or near record corn and soybean crops, but the latest reports did send the markets downward. The agency increasing yields for corn and soybeans this month. Corn now at 176.5 bushels an acre, up slightly from last month. Soybeans now 51.5. That's up almost a full bushel. Corn production now stands at 15 billion bushels, up slightly from last month and up 6% from last year. And forecasters saying it would be the second highest production on record. As for soybeans, production is now expected to be 4.45 billion bushels, up 2% from last month. And USDA says if that number holds true, it would be the highest production on record for the U.S. What we've really seen this year is, is those genetics really in play. And you, you talk to the seed companies and they will tell you that as well, that they really haven't added bushels to the bottom. What they've done is they've negated the negative impact of poor weather on the top end. So a bigger corn and soybean crop and also bigger ending stocks coming in higher than the trade had guessed for corn forecasters say supplies are rising and use is falling. So stocks are raised 92 million bushels from last month now projected to be 1.5 billion bushels. Soybeans up 135 million bushels from September on higher crush and unchanged exports now at 320 million bushels and wheat. That's the bright spot from the grain reports on Tuesday coming in close to what was expected 580 million bushels, the lowest U.S. ending stocks since 2007. I think this report could have been worse for soybeans than it was. Uh, you look at the world stocks, world stocks came in bigger than the September WASDE report. Uh, so that's adding to a little bit of the pressure here. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai traveling to Italy this week, meeting with other trade leaders ahead of the G20 summit later this month. Those talks follow last week's high-profile meeting between Tai and her Chinese counterpart. Now the two holding a video discussion last Friday in which the two sides acknowledged the importance of a bilateral trade relationship. We're told that the two sides discussed the phase one trade agreement and agreed that they would consult on certain outstanding issues. Tai did emphasize U.S. concerns relating to China state-led non-market policies and practices that she says harm American workers, farmers, as well as businesses. And from the Chinese vantage point, leaders there pressed that the U.S. officials about lifting additional tariffs and sanctions. Well, the renewed discussions come at a time when China has been making big buys of U.S. ag this year. China has been buying over the last 11 months more U.S. soybean, sorghum, beef, and corn. Their buys this year representing 20% of all export sales. 
Now, there could be a bit of good news when it comes to the supply chain issues involving glyphosate. The Bayer glyphosate plant in Louisiana is now back online following damage caused by Hurricane Ida. China is also a major exporter of glyphosate, and it's estimated that over 80% of the country's supply is exported. Right now, parts of China are plagued with an energy problem. That's despite Beijing's efforts to boost coal supplies and manage electricity use. Reuters reporting the rebound in global economic activity is exposing shortages of fuels used for generating power in China as well as other countries. I think the really prudent approach is not only have plan A and B, but think about plan C perhaps even D, because with the forecoming shortages, it's really difficult, I think, to make a lot of predictions on either what products will or will not be available. In an effort to clear up the supply chain crunch in the country, the White House has brokered an agreement to target where some of the backups start, and that's West Coast ports. The agreement means the Port of Los Angeles will become a 24-hour, seven days a week operation. The expanded hours will almost double the time that cargo will be allowed to move in and out of the port. That port and the Port of Long Beach account for 40% of all shipping containers entering the U.S. This is a big first step in speeding up the movement of materials and goods through our supply chain. But now we need the rest of the private sector chain to step up as well. In addition, major shippers and retailers, including Walmart, FedEx, UPS, Samsung, Home Depot, and Target, will ramp up their operations to clear cargo out of the ports, freeing up more space on the docks. The goal is to move an additional 3,500 containers during the night each week. Well, it's back to the negotiation table for union workers with John Deere. That's after they voted down a proposed six-year contract. The contract would have covered more than 10,000 workers and locations in Waterloo, Iowa, as well as Illinois and Kansas. The plan includes raises, cost of living adjustments, and a 401k retirement program instead of a pension. We're told both sides were conducting further negotiations yet this week. Well, the vice president of labor relations at Deere says operations at the plants will continue as normal and that they are fully committed to continuing the collective bargaining process. Well, harvest came to a halt again here in Missouri this week with all the rain, but other areas are dealing with snow for the first time this year. Mike Hoffman will have a check of weather when we come back. Welcome back. Well, Mike. It was a good run. Here we are in mid-October and just now talking about widespread snow. Good morning to you, Tyne. Yeah, we've had uh, a slow start to the snow this winter, but uh, it definitely did snow in a lot of places over the past week. However, this coming week, as you're going to see, not a lot going on. But look at what some of that moisture did. There's actually blue areas showing up in the west in the root zone. Haven't seen that in a long time, except in southern Arizona in New Mexico. It's continuing to be wet, although that area has shrunk up a little bit over the past week over the uh, southeast and the southern Mississippi Valley, some spots through the northern tier of states as well. Drought monitor then showing most of the eastern third has uh, lost the drought completely. A little bit there in far northern New England. There's still some in North Dakota, although the next week we may see an improvement in that. And you can still see uh, areas out west, but uh, that is still an improving situation. So here's the jet stream. Storm system sitting uh, to the northeast of New England will sit there for a while, as you're going to see. Another system trying to come eastward will probably develop then as we head through the end of the week and into this following weekend. And that may uh, produce some scattered uh, showers over the Great Lakes as we head through time. But I don't see 
any big uh, amounts of snow anymore for this week for the western states. Let's go day by day with that. Weak system coming in. This is that upper level low I showed you, but it doesn't have much moisture with it. So a few spotty showers there as we head through Monday. A little bit of lingering moisture in the northeast. Other than that, high pressure dominates. It'll be warm through the southern tier states. A quick shot of chilly air for the east coast. Mild again with sunshine for the northern plains. By Wednesday then, that system's coming east. Still not a lot of moisture with it. This is all scattered light showers across the uh, plain states all the way up into uh, Black Hills of South Dakota. But again, scattered and light. Next system trying to come into the Pacific Northwest. Each of these coming in now, it looks like probably going to have a tough time coming eastward. So high pressure dominating from the Great Lakes into the southeast with sunshine. Still a little bit of lingering uh, rain and snow in the far northeast and in eastern Canada. By Friday then, that system finally makes it to the Great Lakes, kind of stalls out in that area. A little bit of snow on the northwest side, otherwise rain showers, scattered thunderstorms along the uh, southeast coast and back into parts of Texas. Other than that, it's a cold shot for the middle of the country, but not overly cold for this time of the year. And the next system just can't make it to the west coast. So here's my forecast, 30 outlook for above normal temperatures, much of the eastern two-thirds of the country, below normal for the west, precipitation, and I'm going to go below normal for the eastern seaboard. This is kind of flip-flop from what we've seen, and eventually we'll see more moisture for the west and plain states, so we'll go above normal for those areas. Tyne? Thanks, Mike. Well, from dissecting USDA's latest report to the reality of input prices and the impact that it will have on the price and acreage picture next year, we are covering it all from right here at the University of Missouri next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend, our 2021 College Roadshow from right here at the University of Missouri. A great crowd from Kaffner. Thanks everyone for joining us. Mother Nature holding off on the moisture right now. We appreciate that as well. Ben, you look at this past week. We had a big USDA report. In these October reports, you know, there's a lot of question marks about soybean demand. Some saying USDA was too conservative in the adjustments that they made. So let's be honest right now. Is soybean demand a sinking ship? Yeah, so you're correct. When we get to October, you know, the October USDA uh, supply and demand reports are always a big deal, mostly because we're looking at production, trying to get a handle on U.S. production. This year, the, the question was really on the demand side, specifically to soybeans. We'd had a hurricane hit some of our Gulf ports that really slowed down our export inspections. Uh, we had a good week this week getting back up a little bit closer to speed. But when we look at overall commitments, both sales and what has left the country, you know, on the soybean side, we're about 37% down from where we were last year. Uh, we continue to trail the pace we need to hit USDA's estimate that's just a smidge under 2.1 billion bushels. So the expectation was that that demand could come down, and it didn't. Yeah, the soybean market has not been impressive. Corn market really hasn't either. After this report, you know, wheat was kind of a, a shining star and continues to be a shining star. Is wheat what's going to continue to, to you know, to support corn prices, and, and can it? Do you think corn prices can find some stability, Scott? So I think they can. Uh, again, I think wheat was a, a little bit of a bright spot out of what we got in, in the report from, from USDA. Um, whether that 
gets us more acreage as we think about what happens for spring wheat next year. That, yeah. that could be one of the things that maybe takes a little bit of the shine off of uh, wheat prices as we look ahead. We'll see how much get, gets planted next spring. Do you think corn, though, can find some momentum? Do you think we can find some stability at these levels? I think we're going to continue to perhaps struggle finding a, a, a place. Uh, Again, I think a better crop maybe gets us uh, uh, a continued some pressure, downward pressure on where corn goes. And of course, that can change pretty quickly with countries like China deciding maybe they'll take some more corn from us. Well, it's an opposite story for cotton, Joe. I mean, you look at this cotton market above a dollar. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks didn't think we could get here. We are here. Can these cotton prices hold? No. Would you like to explain why, Joe? Okay. Uh, <laughs> the the uh, when we generally, as economists, we look at fundamental things that, that affect the markets, and, and basically, this has happened kind of against the fundamentals. So, uh, I expect this to be kind of a short-lived deal, and it's going to return. Producers don't want to hear it. I'm far enough from home; I can actually say these things. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is, they need to be looking at marketing some of their crop at this price. Yeah, and as you look at harvest continuing, and now we're going to debate 2022 acreage bin. You not only have wheat prices and cotton prices and sorghum prices that have been really friendly, but you have these high input costs. So when you look at the factors that could really change the game for acreage next year, how big of a factor will not only input prices be, but also input availability? Yeah, that's a great question. And the availability point there is what I want to emphasize, because when we look at um, prices, soybean prices have fallen 70 cents since the start of the marketing year, you know, $1.40 in the last couple months. And so that's why I'm sitting here saying I'm not exactly sure soybeans are going to give up that much acreage to corn, um, at least at the current point. But if we can't source nitrogen for whatever reason, uh, you know, that, that really starts to impact that and hinder that. So if we can't source nitrogen, and let's say some of those producers then move over to soybeans, how will we see these prices compete, Joe, next spring? Because it could be an interesting acreage battle. Correct. I, I guess I've... When you look at these types of things, usually you, you say who's the highest cost of production, who has all these input costs, and it's cotton, rice, and uh, uh, corn. And so obviously it's going they're going to be some bidding bidding of acres. Uh, I always I so, told someone earlier I think that uh, in this part of the world you have the choice between corn and beans, uh, and frankly. It's one of those things where it's going to look really a lot like you ought to go towards beans, but uh, y'all always are sneaky and you're going to plant some corn regardless because the price is, if, the, if everybody goes beans, the price of corn is going to go up. Scott, and you have you, to think about those things. Yeah, you agree with that? Absolutely. I think expectations are going to matter a lot here. What, what do folks really think is going to get uh, soybeans in the ground and does that push soybean prices down relative to corn? Is that the first time ever that you've agreed with Joe? It is the first time ever well, I've agreed with yeah. Joe. That's Congratulations, right. a first yes. on the show this weekend. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with much more U.S. Farm Report in just a moment. Well, attendance at many collegiate football stadiums, including right here at the University of Missouri, is back at full capacity. But not every sporting event is seeing strong attendance. Here's John Phipps. When the Major League Baseball regular season ended this year, they had one of the most unlikely outcomes possible. Four teams with identical season records qualifying for a shot at a wild card game. There were multiple scenarios about how it could play out, 
and the baseball business world was salivating at both the drama and significant revenue and attention for the sport. Now, full disclosure here, I haven't paid much attention to pro baseball since the Cubs won the series in 2016. What's the point? Or pro basketball since Michael Jordan, or the NFL since Walter Payton. I have noticed uh, the pro sports business model could be in trouble, I think. Game attendance for baseball, for instance, has been declining since 2015. Football attendance and participation are falling, and NBA revenue looks stagnant. The problem for the industry are multiple. High ticket prices, rapid advances in TV technology with lower prices, which makes staying at home much more attractive. And for football, sharply lower participation by younger players. And if the idea of paying college players takes hold, those programs will cannibalize pro attendance and revenue, I think. But there's a signif another significant competitor. Many experts point to video gaming as the looming threat. For example, fantasy football revenue will soon be twice as large as the real version upon which it depends, ironically. As it is, global video gaming revenue at $179 billion annually is vastly larger than all North American pro sports and movies combined. More importantly, the popularity of this sport, and I'm, I'm not crazy about that label either, is growing rapidly. The critical technology that supports gaming is internet quality, mainly speed and latency. That's the delay between the button push and the spear throwing. For a good online gaming experience, a useful rule of thumb is 40 megabits minimum speed and 40 milliseconds maximum latency. These are easily achieved with a cable hookup. Very few rural residents have access to any connection close to this. Should current efforts by government and private industry, such as Starlink, come to pass, video gaming could penetrate to virtually every home everywhere. It could change not only our interest in sports, but our entire rural culture, just as it is doing everywhere else. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, it's a look at some special antique iron. Tractor Tales happens right after the break. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AgriGold, your seed ally in the field with unparalleled options that perform on your farm. Learn more at agrigold.com. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week, we've got a special treat for you. Served a five-year apprenticeship as an automobile mechanic, and I served another five-year working as a plumber. And then I uh, went to work construction, and I ended up working for uh, General Electric Large Team Carpet Division. And I restore old tractors for something to keep me busy. That's a 58 Model 60. Uh, it was given to me uh, by a cousin to uh, be restored. It was just somebody's junk when I got it. I've got it all back together because there's a few spots that I didn't work on that I need to. But uh, other than that, the tractor runs good. Or did. I haven't started for a long time, too long. But uh, I was a farm tractor, but, uh, but I tried, always tried to keep them as original as possible. I got a couple of leaks on there that I didn't work on that I, I want to work on when I get this one done. But Michael, my son, got the, he drove it in every gear. It worked. 
That's all he wanted to do was try it out. Well, the University of Missouri and the town of Columbia has exploded with buildings over the past 100 years, but there's one field that hasn't changed. We will tell you that story as our college roadshow continues next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from the University of Missouri is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Well, if you love agriculture as well as history, there's one field that sets just down the road from here. That's seven acres. And while so much has changed here at the University of Missouri, including this stadium, Sanborn Field has not. And the mission has also stayed the same. Just behind these gates. This is a very unique treasure that we have. As a field rooted in history. Sanborn Field is the third oldest continuous research center in the world. That's right, the world. Started in 1888, it's a historic landmark that's far from a history museum. The premise was is that we need to teach farmers about crop rotation, fertilizers, these new things coming out. So that's been going on ever since. While the University of Missouri campus has grown and changed, Sanborn Field sets in the same spot. And what's really neat about Sanborn Field is that we've got some studies that have been going on since 1888 and some that have been slightly tweaked along the way. But if we do tweak something, it's gotta be for a reason. 39 treatments are scattered across this one field. But nowhere else in the world can you have this many treatments, 39 of them, all in the same soil type. Mexico silt loam soil is also the base layer for everything that's done here. It all points to soil health. Everything that we've done from rotations to uh, fertilizer like, like manures makes such a big difference with, with our soil health and our productivity. Tom Kabrick is a senior this year, but Sanborn Field was where he got his start. Started helping here in 2016, uh, my first summer job. Year after year, he's been down every row. They're very depressed down because of how many times they've been worked over over the years. And it's pretty interesting to see that there's been no extra soil that's been brought in. Original soil with a field that's been planted in continuous corn for 132 years. It all happens here. Continuous corn does not work very well, but if you go back 40, 50, 60 years, the changes were not near as dramatic. We've really seen this accelerate in, in the last 20 to 30 years. Reinbot says the biggest drain on soil health is a traditional corn and soybean rotation every year. What we found out here at Sandborn is that when you put soybeans in the rotation, many of our soil health parameters start falling out. And he says soybeans create a fragile biomass that breaks down in the soil quickly. So it's not really building. Whereas if we have wheat in the rotation, it doesn't matter if it's every year or every third or fourth year, the soil health differences are tremendous. But he says adding a dose of wheat can propel corn yields. When we just have that rotation with no other inputs, the corn's probably 10 times better, 10 times yield more. And if wheat isn't an option, Reinbot says the next best thing is a cover crop. After four years, you start seeing a very big positive 
it increased. Uh, soybeans are, are always about seven bushel per acre. That's been pretty consistent. And after four years, we start seeing corn going up about 10 to 15 bushel. The first few years are kind of rough, but once you start building that soil health up, things start changing. And the third key to healthier soil structure is manure. And these two with the manure has an excellent soil structure, whereas the non-manure does. As a matter of fact, it was very difficult to even plow this. This, this fall because it has no structure. Reinbot says if you layer any of those with no-till, it's a winning recipe for soil health. The organic matter is up about one whole unit. So from 2.6 to 3.6, and that gives us better water infiltration. Robots were even deployed here this summer to measure crop growth as well as stress. This summer, we added some more twist. We, we had weekly drone shots that we can measure not only growth every week, but also water stress and, and insect stress and other stresses. And as technology takes this research to another level, it's adding another layer to a field that's already historic. For example, did you know that our basics of our antibiotics came from here? Plot 23 right over here, that's where the soil sample was taken that they isolated oromycines from that became our basics of our tetracyclines. So it all started right here. A treasured find that's even at the Smithsonian, but a find that may not be the end of what Reinbot and others harvest here. Healthy soil will equal a healthy plant. A healthy plant will equal a healthy animal, whether it's a human or a livestock. Harvesting the past and planting a future that some think will be around for another 132 years. Well, when we come back, speaking of research, there was a study done, an in-depth study on the cattle markets, and it was a comprehensive report that Texas A&M released with the help of one University of Missouri economist. We'll talk to both of them as our round tables continue next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Well, we talked about acreage, we talked about the USDA report, but Ben, at the end of the day, so much depends on what China's going to do. And as we come to the close of this phase one agreement, do you think there's possibility for a phase two? I mean, if you had to give even the phase one a, gr a grade right now, what would it be? You know, so I'll, I'll say that I, I'm not overly optimistic of a phase two, just from the standpoint that you know, when we look at what China did for phase one, it was largely market driven. They bought what they needed when they needed it. Uh, and we saw them respond very similarly when the conditions change. So if we expect places around the world to, you know, increase production or at least, you know, come back from what they had the last couple of years, uh, we would expect lower inputs or imports into the Chinese market. And I think that's what's being signaled for the year ahead. So, you know, I, my grade for the phase one and even probably phase two is it was largely market-based. Um, and certainly I expect that to continue going forward. Yeah, Joe, I mean, when you look at the Biden administration and, and recent talks they have with China, there's talks that these tariffs are going to remain in place. I mean, do you think there's a lot of risk from here when it comes to demand from China? Absolutely. Uh, I've been following Fabry for 30 years, working with them very closely, and, and pretty much every baseline they put out, it depends. It has a caveat somewhere in there that says it depends on what China does. This is no different. And if they, if they are strong in the markets, then we're going to have really good prices. If not, then we're going to be competing against the rest of the world who are going to be reacting to these high price signals uh, at the same time. Speaking of those, those high prices and speaking of kind of some of the baseline projections, you know, with FAPRI, University of Missouri, some of the projections that have come out, when you look at all commodities with today's prices, with today's input prices, 
what looks to be the crop that maybe producers can make the most money on next year? I think that's a tough question to answer, but uh, to, to jump in, I'll say, so certainly, uh, I, th I think there's some opportunities on the corn side, especially depending on what acreage looks like next spring, uh, to, to see some higher prices. We've had the discussion about what really happens on the input side. You know, I, I might just switch gears for a minute and say, I can get bullish cattle next year, as a matter of fact. China could certainly be the one driver, uh, as, as you talk China in particular, uh, I always tell my the students all the time, 70% of the time they're right if they'll answer China to what ha happens to ag markets. And cattle's one of those. The, the increases we've seen this year, coupled with the drought that we're seeing in cattle country, I can get bullish cattle. But let's be honest, we've been talking about China when it comes to the cattle markets for years, and we've seen them dabble in it a little bit, but not significantly. Joe, I know Texas A&M just put out a very interesting report when it comes to the cattle markets and when mm -hmm. it comes to price transparency. You delivered that to Congress. What was the biggest finding from that report that really was a collaboration of, of multiple universities? Right. I, the biggest finding of that report was that it, the uh, cattle market is a lot more complicated than people want to make it out to be at the coffee shop, and that it's really... Uh, there's a lot of people saying this broken and needs to be fixed and, and having spent my entire career working in, in policy, uh, sometimes the, the, uh, the fixes can be worse than the, the problem. So I, I think caution was really the big, the big uh, take home. Well, Ben, you know, I know you've worked at some, some of those baseline projections and looking at budgets next year. When you look at livestock and row crops right now, what's the big takeaway considering input prices and everything that we have on the table today? Yeah, and I'm actually going to take the question you posed to Scott a little bit, too, to take this. And, you know, we just released our production budgets from the University of Missouri here, and we can actually find support for corn um, in comparison to soybeans, I, to most people's surprise. Now, every time we turn the page, nitrogen or fertilizer costs have gone up. But we can still make a case for corn. Uh, on the livestock side, you know, we've got um, opportunities for livestock that we haven't had in a while. Well, you mentioned those input prices. Joe, it all comes down to supply chain, even sourcing some of this. Can we get enough glyphosate, glufosinate, fertilizer? Can we get enough of it here? When you look at the supply chain issues, the White House this week talked about it. They think maybe some policy can come into play and, and, and fix some of these issues that we have. Is policy the answer? No. I, okay, so we're economists. We're all three economists. So we, we would say that uh, the markets need to work. And, and if the government can give a nudge here and there, but basically... Uh, the markets are going to allocate the resources out there, and, and that's really my, uh, that's what I would think needs to happen. Okay, and, you know, they announced that they're going to have, like, the Port of L.A. It's going to be 24 hours, but we know labor's been an issue. If they can't find enough labor now to operate at their hours, I mean, realistically, are they going to be enough, you know, is there going to be enough labor to operate 24 hours out, uh, out of the day? So I think it's going to be tough to do that. Now, I, I will continue to say we need to do everything possible to clear those ports out. Get, getting help from the administration there can, can be beneficial. Let's not just overstate that we're going to fix this overnight. It's going to take time to work through many of the supply bottlenecks. And, and frankly, I think we live with those supply bottlenecks for many months ahead. Yeah. It's not going to be a quick fix. All right. Well, Joe Outlaw, thank you for making the trip up from Texas A&M. I do not wish your team luck this weekend. Ben and Scott, thank you for joining us. We need to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with much more from right here at Mizzou. Well, as retail meat prices remain under scrutiny by the White House, USDA recently announced $500 million to help expand small and medium-sized meat processors across the country. And while the money is meant to expand meat processing, it doesn't address another major pain point for processors, labor. And that's where the University of Missouri 
is now stepping in. A favorite of Columbia, Missouri carnivores is a student run full processing facility. So one thing that we did learn during the pandemic is that this is a nation of meat eaters and demand was quite high. The Mizzou meat market is a mainstay on campus and during the COVID-19 pandemic, it became an essential source for shoppers searching for protein. Here at the Mizzou meat market, we actually got permission to be stay open as an essential business through the university. And I would argue that we probably had our best sales year ever in 2020 and into 21. The influx of consumer demand wasn't just happening here, but at local meat processors across the state and country. It wasn't that there wasn't product in the pipeline, but the pipeline got wrinkled up essentially. And as those processors continue to be pinched for labor, the state of Missouri stepped in with $20 million to help support small processors across the state struggling with funds from the CARES Act. That effort, I would argue, was successful, and uh, we actually took on 27 new inspected uh, facilities in the state. With $3 million still unused, Missouri Director of Agriculture Chris Chen asked Wigan for ideas to put that $3 million to work, crafting a grant proposal in just six weeks. With one part of the grant money dedicated to upgrading equipment here, the second piece is a project still being carved out. Ordered just yesterday two mobile uh, units, trailers that are uh, self-contained for the processing plant uh, for going out into the state because oftentimes if you look at the personnel that we're trying to attract into the workforce, uh, they're unemployed, underemployed. A unique concept. One of them is a hot dog factory on wheels. And one that could fill many meat processors the biggest needs. So reality is that um, we, we want to put skilled labor into uh, these existing uh, businesses. And tap to bring the idea to life is Ty Peckman, who's just one week in on the job. We've taught several courses that cover a lot of the aspects from food safety to, to the basics of further processed meat and the, the principles of meat science, but it's really then how do we take this from a college course level down and do we distill it to what's essential for folks who may not come in with those background knowledge. Peckman says the workforce development program will be practical and adaptable. I hope it's something that's not stagnant, but ever-changing, ever-evolving. As context will be key. It's understanding just enough the science to why is it important that whenever we talk about humane animal handling and animal care, whenever we receive those animals, what's, what's the importance of doing that not only from the animal well-being sake, but from uh, the betterment of a product down the line standpoint. It's grants like this that are pouring into the College of Agriculture, Food and Natural Resources here at Mizzou right now. The college is up 45% in shared credit awards uh, within the college during that pandemic cycle than they were the year prior. So 45%, a huge increase in awards coming into the college. The dean says this specific grant is an example of how the land grant mission continues to thrive here. It's about taking the research, the work that we do in our classrooms and in our laboratories and taking that knowledge and taking it out state. That is truly the land grant mission. As the custom mobile meat processing units are set to be complete by this spring, Wigan says it'll expand beyond much more than just animal sciences. For us, putting those on, on the road is going to be the first major win. And we're actually communicating with some of our community colleges and some of their workforce programs so that we can have a bigger uh, network in the state. As the group taps into a new tradition, the mission remains. We need to have trained personnel in these small businesses. 
and they need to have staying power. As this program shows why Mizzou animal science may just be a cut above the rest. The group is even working on a model to employ and train some individuals that are or have been incarcerated to help fill the labor gaps. All right, when we come back, John Phipps. How's the weather in Europe? Well, it's been a mild fall for many, including here in Missouri. North Dakota even hit triple digits in late September, a first for that far north in the fall. But how is weather elsewhere? Here's John Phipps. This question from Joe Miller in Roberts, Wisconsin. Can you do a segment on weather conditions in Europe? Are they having the same weather issues we are, and is that affecting yields? That's a great question. It's always good to widen our perspective to include the whole globe. The U.S. and Europe are roughly similar in size, depending on whether you're comparing the lower 48 states, the European Union, or continental Europe, which includes Eastern Europe like Ukraine and Belarus, and whether to add or delete Great Britain. Asking about European weather, then, is like asking about U.S. weather, a big area with wildly different conditions in different places. Remember, in 2021, we froze Texas, baked the Northwest, continued to parch the West and Northern Great Plains, and flooded Louisiana and some Eastern states. And we still have three months to go. In Europe, they enjoyed similar weather ranges and extremes. One of the most widespread, however, were the temperatures. These maps show the temperature anomalies. That's the difference between the actual and average temperatures. Now, March wasn't too unusual, but April and May were some of the coldest this century. But in an amazing turnaround, the summer was searingly hot with Sicily setting the all-time recorded high temperature for Europe at just a whisker below 120 degrees F. In fact, this was the hottest summer for Europe ever recorded. Meanwhile, an intense low pressure system flooded much of Europe with torrential downpours that took the lives of about 200 Europeans, many of whom died because they never imagined swollen rivers would reach homes that had been safe for centuries. It's fair to say the weather was all over the map, all over the map for Europe. As for crop production, the EU is a major cereal grain and oilseed producer with harvest spreading over most of the summer. The weather extremes has affected all of them differently. For the wheat and barley areas in Germany and France, for example, the rain and heat lowered the milling quality of the grain and slowed the harvest. Other crops like grapeseed had their own problems. Now, since Europe is much larger than the EU alone, other areas were affected completely differently and had variable outcomes, just like our Corn Belt and wheat regions. When our global supply-demand reports are discussed, our market experts will point out any atypical production numbers for Europe, so I'll leave that to them. My friends in Denmark and England report their crop year so far has been challenging, but each for different reasons. Thanks, John. When we come back, a University of Missouri grad student exploring the complexity of dairy policy today. That's next. Well, on campuses across the country, you'll find individuals who are discovering their passion. And for one master's student right here at Mizzou, it's dairy policy, something not only complex, but varies widely by region. Emily Pliscott, I'm at Mizzou working on my master's in agricultural economics with a focus on policy analysis. 
I've spent a lot of my time learning the ins and outs of dairy policy. So um, I've learned a lot about like the cooperative structure as well as um, how a lot of the programs pay out and possibly some things that'll be helpful in the future as we make adjustments um, in policy. Well, Emily will defend her thesis coming up next month, and once she graduates, she already has plans to head to Washington, D.C. and join the House Ag Committee. So congratulations, Emily. Well, that wraps up our show from right here at the University of Missouri. An alumni myself, thank you so much to everyone at the University of Missouri for the great show this week. Well, next week, we're heading on the road again. Our 2021 College Roadshow heads to Purdue, thanks to Golden Harvest. Thanks for joining everyone and join us next week as we work to build on our U.S. Farm Report tradition. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.